Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. The door to the book repair room was open and I could see Ebb leaning into his task. I waited, not wanting to cause a slip. The room was small, no machines. He did everything the way it had been done for centuries. There was space for two and sometimes an apprentice would stand alongside him or I would be called from the girl's side to re-sew an old book by hand, like Ma used to do. Ebb could sew as well as any of us, but it was considered women's work by the unions and by most of the men. Today, he was alone. The bench was littered with the tools of his trade, bone folders of various shapes for page folding and leather work, brushes for glue and glare and gilt, tools for decorating leather and cloth, a gilding cushion, linen, tape and shears, My sewing box was where I'd left it the last time I'd been there. It held needles, thread and cord, a leather thimble and palm shield. Ma had made them for me when I'd begun to sew. There were three books on Ebb's bench, likely from a college library or a country home. Two were in a state of undress. Their new casings and red Morocco leather laid neatly beside them. The other was dressed and Ebb was in the process of finishing. I stood at the open door and watched him wipe a swatch of old leather over his hair, then use it to pick up a leaf of gold. It fluttered as it was lifted by the static, but it kept its shape. He laid it on the newly tooled leather covering the book in front of him, and I wondered what the title was. He brushed off the excess, then he lifted his thick glasses off his nose and bent close to the book to check for errors. I moved into the room. Will it live to be read another day? He looked up and replaced his glasses. Then he smiled the way he always did when he saw Maud or me. It will, he said. I held out my hand and he placed the book in it. A thin volume. Othello, The Moor of Venice. Pip Williams is the author of the international bestseller The Dictionary of Lost Words, based on her original research in the Oxford English Dictionary Archives. Today, I'm joined by Pip to talk about her new book and companion to the Dictionary of Lost Words, The Bookbinder of Jericho. Pip Williams, welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. It's really lovely to be here, Greg. Thank you for having me. Peggy and Maud are twin sisters at Oxford University Press in the town of Jericho. But before we talk about Peggy and Maud, where are we in time and space and and what's significant about this moment in time for you? We're in the um, town or the neighbourhood of Jericho, which is a neighbourhood of Oxford in in England. Uh, And Jericho these days is a very um, salubrious place to live. But back 100 years ago at the turn of the 20th century, it was a very poor uh, place to live. About 60% of the people who lived in Jericho worked at Oxford University Press. Um, and the press itself was part of the University of Oxford, and it certainly looks the part. It's a beautiful stone building with a, a quad and, um, you know, all the accoutrements of the university. Um, and in some ways is quite out of place 
in Jericho, which is a whole lot of workers' cottages, a lot of poverty. At the time uh, that the story is set, which is around World War I, um, a lot of those houses still didn't have electricity or very good plumbing. There was a lot of illness um, and so on. And so we're talking about a very working-class area, but a very, very tight-knit community. Books feature pretty large in your life. You lovingly describe the physical experience of opening a book, the crack of the spine, you're right, but also about the bookbinder's art. You write about the rhythm of the bookbinder and the instruments they use. What is it about books and the art of bookbinding? The Dictionary of Lost Words was about words, what they mean to different people and whose words have legitimacy, I suppose. Um, what this book is is about is knowledge. It's about who gets to make it, who gets to access it, and what is, what are the consequences when knowledge is denied. And the way I approach that is really to um, look at the life of a woman who works in the bindery of Oxford University Press, a woman who works with books every day of her life. She's constantly handling the words of the men, and they usually are men, who are writing the books um, for Oxford University and for the rest of the English-speaking world. And yet she's denied the knowledge that she works with every day. Uh, so she's told your job is to bind the books, not read them. But this is a young woman who desires knowledge. She desires to learn. And um, I was really interested in those two aspects of this woman, both her desire to learn um, and she's She's denied that for two main reasons. She's a woman um, and she's a working class woman. So those two things prohibit her from accessing knowledge. Uh, but I was also really interested in her profession, which is as a bookbinder, a woman who works in a bindery. Um, and, and all of the things that go into these books that you and I and everyone listening to your podcast value so highly I was conscious when I started writing this book how little I knew of the life of a book before I ended up holding it in my hands. Um, and and once I started writing this book, and and I've come to realise that writing for me is always a, a process of discovery. I write because I don't know something. <laughs> so it's the opposite to that adage. I write about things I'm interested in learning about. And I learned about the life of, of a book, that object you were talking about, before it becomes a book. And, and by doing so, I, I appreciate now the, the craft behind bookbinding, uh, the skill and the knowledge built up over years that existed, not so much today because it's so automated, but back 100 years ago, the, the number of people and craftspeople that were involved in getting those beautiful books into our hands is really quite incredible and, and a story worth knowing. Both Peggy and Ward are bindery girls at Oxford University Press. Peggy finds a way to educate herself through the bookbinding process, but that process also means that she might see one page of a book, but perhaps not the reverse. So in a sense, her desire to learn is driven by what's missing. That's exactly right. And in so many ways, that's how people who are denied, structurally denied access to knowledge, that's how they gain it. They gain it here and there 
They gain it um, surreptitiously. Uh, they they take advantage of opportunities to learn. Uh, and Peggy is no different to that. Uh, she she has not been given the means to continue beyond the age of 12 at school. That was the average uh, leaving age back then for a working class woman. Um, her circumstances don't let her go to high school and yet she has the, the drive and the desire to learn and she certainly has the capacity. And she's put in this situation where she is, knowledge is passing in front of her eyes, you know, every minute of the day. Uh, and I was really curious about what would a woman who desires to learn, who desires knowledge, not just access to it, but perhaps to even be a knowledge maker, what would working in a bindery do to somebody like that? I can only put myself in her shoes in some ways. And I know I would stop every now and then and read the words on the pages I was folding. More does something like a foil to Peggy's rising star, I suppose. They live together on the good ship Calliope, which is in many ways Peggy's actual muse. Uh, aside from being twins, though, these two characters are vastly different. Yes, they are. And I should just a note on Calliope. Calliope is actually a narrow boat on the Oxford Canal. Narrow boats back then, um, particularly in the 19th century, were usually working boats. Um, and in the early 20th century, they started to be transformed into permanent dwellings because essentially the Industrial Revolution hit the waterways just as it hit everywhere else. And so um, many narrow boats were converted to what were called flyboats. So they were motorised. And um, and anyway, so Peggy and Maud live on a narrow boat called Calliope. And Calliope is named after one of the muses from ancient Greek mythology. And Calliope is thought to be the muse, uh, Homer's muse, in fact, the supposed author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and so her name is quite significant in terms of the story and Peggy's family history. But yes, Peggy and Maud live alone on Calliope because their mother has died a few years earlier when they were um, about 17. And Calliope is filled with the rejects from Oxford University Press. So even though Peggy is not allowed to read while she's at work, she does manage to find ways to uh, bring home pages and sections of books and poorly bound books back to Calliope. And that's how she accesses knowledge, again, surreptitiously, you know, clandestinely. <laughs> Maud is her identical twin. Uh, they look alike in every possible way. But as you said, they're very, very different. Maud is very happy with her lot in life. She's very happy folding. She's very happy uh, being a bindery girl, the complete opposite to, to Peggy. And Peggy has a feeling that she has to look after Maud uh, because Maud's a little different and is one of the things that gets in the way of her dreams. And, of course, along comes World War I and war has very different consequences for different people. It's also the source of terrible suffering. But for Peggy, there is an opportunity in war. What is the opportunity? World War I and World War II created huge shifts in society. And the big shift was that men were um, taken away from their usual jobs and positions 
uh, and roles in the community and they were sent to war. Women stepped up. Women took over many of the roles and jobs that men were doing and proved themselves capable. And we're talking about the UK in 1914 when women didn't have the right to vote. And one of the reasons they didn't have the right to vote was because there was a general um, argument that they weren't capable of, you know, the thought and the industry and the um, intellect to contribute in the way that men contributed. But as soon as the war started, it became very clear that women could do anything. (laughs) For those who didn't already know it, women were capable of doing anything that men could do. Um, And so the war created an opportunity for women to demonstrate that, but it also changed the way women moved around in the world, quite literally. Suddenly they were allowed into places they hadn't been allowed into before. They were allowed to do jobs they hadn't been allowed to do before. So just as a very small example, Peggy and Maud work on the girls' side of the bindery and they were known as bindery girls. And I use that word only because that is the word that was used back then. They were not girls, they were women. But interestingly, in the Oxford University Press, there was the girls' side and the men's side. (laughs) Um, Not the women's side and the men's side, the girls' and the men's side. So that tells you something about what they thought of women. They infantilised them to some degree. And the other thing about Oxford University Press is it it was incredibly unionised. So even if a woman was thought to be capable of working the presses, for instance, they weren't allowed to, the unions would forbid it. So there were lots of structures in place keeping women in their place. Uh, But when the war started and men had to sign up and fight, a lot of the work that they did started to fall behind. And even the unions understood that they had to allow women to do these men's jobs or else the jobs would never get done. And so, in fact, at Oxford University Press, some women finally were allowed to work the presses and to work in other parts of of the press. And that's just one example. And this precipitated the vote uh, in 1918. So before the war even ended, uh, Parliament finally gave women the vote. But not all women, only women with property or a university degree. Um, not the women, in fact, who drove the buses <laughs> and worked the presses. Let's talk about Tilda, Tilda Taylor. She describes herself as a washed-up actress. Peggy says Tilda was like a storm. She blew in and churned things up and exposed what I tried to keep submerged. Some people who've read the Dictionary of Lost Words will will um, be familiar with Tilda. She was in that book and she's a, a plays a larger role in the lives of Peggy and Maud. She was very friendly with and very close to their mother and that's how they know Tilda. Uh, she has been very important to them when their mother died, caring for them in the in the months and years after their mother died to some extent. And she is in a position as a single washed-up actress. (laughs) Um, She's in a position to take up the call to become a VAD. VAD stands for Volunteer Aid Detachment, and VADs were nurses and also volunteers in other capacities. Tilda becomes a VAD. She joins the Red Cross, and she ends up going to France as a nurse. And Tilda's role in Peggy and Maud's life really 
is as a, I suppose, an adult. She doesn't replace their mother when their mother dies, but she she is a link to their mother, but she is also an older woman and she has not got a maternal bone in her body. Anyone who read the Dictionary of Lost Words would probably <laughs> understand that, but she brings something else to Peggy's life in particular. She brings ballast. She brings advice. She brings a different point of view. Also far more worldly wise. That's right. Tilda has travelled the world. Tilda knows a thing or two. Tilda gives the sort of advice, not that a mother would give, but that an older cousin might give. (laughs) She's incredibly important to the life of these twin sisters. But she's also important to the story because while this story is set during World War I, it is completely from the women's point of view. And I was really interested to not write a war story that was from the perspective of men who were fighting or from women who were waiting. So most war stories are either about men fighting, women waiting, or espionage. Um, And I was kind of curious about the women who were not waiting for someone, who didn't have skin in the game, so to speak. They didn't have a husband or a brother or, or a lover at the front. They stayed at home and they continued working and life went on. They adjusted, of course, to all of the things that war brings to a country, but they didn't have that same emotional connection. And I was interested in these people. And Tilda, um, by being a VAD in France, she gives the story and she gives my characters an understanding of what's going on at the front. And this is where we get back to this idea of knowledge. What Tilda tells them about the war is very different to what they might glean from the newspapers because there was so much censorship. So it's it's just another layer of, you know, who gets to access knowledge and what are the consequences when it's denied. Pip Williams, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's been such a pleasure. I hope I hope everybody enjoys it. I've been talking to Pip Williams about her latest book, The Bookbinder of Jericho. It's published by Affirm, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.